All right, 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 all right. All right. Welcome to this week's Yawa. We have another absolutely fantastic collection of questions. Again, it rolls in and around just shy of 100 questions, which is fantastic. We will try to get to as many of them as possible, but we will not be able to get to all of them. So um, we do have a short segment of show and tell, if you will, uh, to start with. Uh, First of all, we're going to say we got this here recently. There we go. Got this here recently from Rob, who just dropped off his dog, Remy. Um, from Montana, and this is Kettle House Brewing Company, a Montana local brew house. Northwest India Pale Ale. So, if you weren't sure what we're drinking tonight. Now we know. Thank you, Rob. And by the way, Remy's doing fantastic. Let's see here. Okay. Mmm. little citrusy. Oh, yeah, this is tasty. And I like the compass. That's pretty cool on there. Yeah, it kind of looks like your compass. Yeah, I got one of those, too. Woo-woo. Okay, so uh, step one's out of the way. We figured out what we're drinking this evening. Yes, let me not spill that. Ooh. Number two, what do we got over there? Number two, we were sent a painting, not of a dog, but by, by a, dog. a dog. I think it was made by Clude the Dutch Shepherd. I'm not sure which is up or down. Maybe he can tell uh, us. Let's go with... Yeah. I think that looks good. <laughs> so it's up here close. Take a look at that. He's got his own uh, YouTube channel, I believe, that yeah, you can you can watch him paint these cool little paintings, which are pretty neat. Absolutely. You can uh, search Clued. We'll throw this up on the website here. Uh, Clued Paints. Uh, and I think it's actually Poi Dog or something that's... We had it pulled up. We were trying to be prepared. And maybe Clued is a she, since the paw print's in pink. I don't know, since Clued is Dutch or something. Poyhound is the name of the actual um, channel. So you can subscribe to Poyhound, and you can actually follow along with everything that Clued's done, which is um, a pretty insane amount of accomplishments, from search and rescue to detection work to think even bite work and some other stuff so definitely check it out and thank you for the painting we will find someplace we'll probably put it up in the new kennel sounds like an appropriate place perfect all right what else we got i think that's it for our show and tell this short this week but now we can start answering your questions so the first question is from instagram nick vanilla 956 why do you guide i can't speak it all yet. Sorry. Those weren't real words. <laughs> I was trying to talk too fast. Why do you guys wear scrubs when dealing with the puppies? Fantastic question. Do you want to answer it? Do you want me to? Sure. I can answer it. It's a pretty easy and straightforward one. We wear scrubs because we don't want to bring anything into those puppies that could potentially get them sick. So we're trying to scrub in, scrub out as much as possible to maintain as sterile of an environment as we can. We also have a kennel of other dogs in for training. And uh, these little puppies' immune systems definitely aren't fully formed at this point and fully developed. So the cleaner and more hygienic that we can create 
their environment and keep their environment, the better. So we wash our hands, we put on little booties, we wear scrubs, um, and we're definitely making sure that those things are cleaned in between going back and forth to the kennel. Yeah, and I think the other side of it is, too, there are quite a few opportunities that Kat and I have where we have clean clothes on and we can go down and work with the puppies or do whatever else. But it's just a good general practice because there are times that, hey, I ran out to the kennel for something and you never know. Something could come back with you. So we try and minimize that as much as possible. Yes. So good question. Next question. This is a easy one for Ethan from Bugsy <laughs> underscore 19. I like the easy ones. Any recommendations for neoprene vest brands that will fit GSPs well? They seem hard to find. Uh, neoprene for duck hunting, I would hope. Rarely is there going to be a situation where you're going to need a neoprene vest for upland hunting. There have been one or two times that it could have been beneficial, but I would say the vests that I've found that seem to do the best are called Rigum Right brand. They have a, a decent vest that fits a majority of pointing or versatile breeds. Um, and then there is another one. I'll have to do a little looking that's actually made out of wool. And I personally have never used one, but I've heard firsthand that they do work well as well. So I will see if I can come up with the name on that one, but for sure the, the ones that I use are, are Rigam Right branded. So like I said, it would be a pretty straightforward one for you. Okay. Next question, which I think is a good one because it's had a couple people that asked okay. a similar question on this Yawa from Ava Thomas on Instagram, how to handle a dog that doesn't have a good first reaction to vibration on a collar. Example, they try to hide and run from it, even if they are in a small space. Sure. So we have done a video on this recently uh, with collar conditioning. There was a Weimariner that we had in for training, and he didn't have the best reaction to vibrate as well. He was trying to avoid or get out of the situation, which it kind of sounds like your dog is trying to do, run and hide from the situation. Avoiding, yeah. Yes, and uh, so the way that we went about working through that situation was we made sure we were in an enclosed environment. We were in a fenced in area with no place for them to go and hide and run behind, like getting under a table or into the corner. And then we also attached a check cord so that we could keep his feet moving in our direction, giving him just slight tugs and then letting him decide to make that movement instead of just reeling him all the way in. Yep. Absolutely. I think the, the key thing with that is, that you set up a better situation for your dog. I mean, it's a fairly common thing that we've seen more recently that people are struggling this way. And um, so you're definitely not alone in that environment, but I think it just comes down to being able to help condition them better. So, And like Ethan said, just setting up your environment right first. Don't try this when you're in a really cluttery space that your dog can have a lot of opportunities to hide behind. And instead of just, well, let's just throw the collar on them and see what happens. We also think that building momentum in your training session is really important. If your dog's been re, um, what's the word I'm looking for? responding, responding really well to positive reinforcement and clicker training and treats. Start your session that way first, then overlay the collar. Once your dog is like, yep, I'm in a kind of a habit of, oh, I just go to mom as soon as she calls me or I go back and forth between mom and dad, then that collar can actually 
just be overlaid with the treats as well. I think the key to the whole process is to understand or to keep in mind that it is a conditioning process because I feel like um, we get the response of, I did all of these sessions. I've built a really good understanding of recall with targeting and we've established a cue. Dogs are doing great. They're on the e-collar and the first session went horrible and the dog doesn't understand what's going on. Well, it's a multiple session process. You know, you're, you're moving from, uh, you know, teaching with positive reinforcement to conditioning with the vibrate as negative reinforcement. And it doesn't happen in just one session. So. Very good question. Great question. And there was somebody else that had a very similar question. I can't find it right now, but, uh, refer to this answer. So the <laughs> next question, whoever you are, whoever refer. you are, you know who you are. I'm sure. Uh, and like, if you are here to refer to that question, this is probably your first time to the channel and we appreciate you tuning in. So hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our new videos. Next question, which uh, is a good one because we get asked this a lot. K. Grant McCown. McCown. Sorry. Meow. Messed it up from Instagram. What makes your lead better or different from the rest on the market? Aha. Great question. So, and when with your lead, I believe he's referring to the only lead that we make, which is called the easy lead. Um, There are a couple different things that we do uh, with that that are going to be different is every single piece of the lead is stainless except for the material. All of the hardware is stainless. 100% 100% stainless steel. So it's really tough and durable is what Ethan's getting at. Mm-hmm. Stainless steel mm-hmm. hardware and then the material is biothane, uh, which is a nylon uh, It's a poly-coated nylon coated. Yep. yep. So it is really durable. So that's a plus. Uh, the other side of it is it's more of a springy material. Uh, so when you're teaching healing, it will release properly when the dog is healing in a correct position, uh, and then you can make corrections with that. And then it's supposed to release really, really easily is the whole point of how that process works. And the lead itself becomes very versatile. So you have a, between the two options, you have the standard leash, which is four and a half feet long. And then you have the XL, which is six feet long, which would be your standard six foot leash. And then, um, we utilize this in a, a couple of different formats. You have one, you have a leash that you can walk your dog around on, and then you have the ability to um, turn it into a slip lead that then can be used, utilized as a head halter style leash for walking. And the material is smooth and soft so that it's not abrasive. And then like Kat was mentioning, springy. So you actually get a pressure on, pressure off from that head halter style of handling. And when you can pull that off of their muzzle, you have a standard slip leash and then you can pull the rope all the way back through the, excuse me, all the way back through the ring of the clip, which if you have, if you don't know exactly what we're talking about, definitely check out one of the multiple videos that we show how to utilize this, but then you go all the way back to a leash. So you have lots of, it's very versatile and extremely durable and 100% satisfaction guaranteed, warranted for life, minus chewing. Yeah, if you just let your dog chew it in half, That's on you and your dog. But that leads into our next question, which is probably the last question for this part. But Stephen underscore Lung on Instagram, Uh how to teach heal and advance the progression with the e-collar as shown on our Instagram. 
Oh, cool. So all of our healing behaviors first started with our easy lead up over the muzzle, and then we're able to transition and progress like you're seeing on our Instagram stories and things like that, as well as some of our YouTube videos. We show this process, so check them out. Uh, But we're transitioning from the over the muzzle to a slip style collar um, lead, and that's using the e-collar and doing some overlaying where when you're tugging, on the lead, you're also using the momentary or Nick button on the Mm e-collar in conjunction at the same time so that the dog feels the stimulation on their neck at the same time they're feeling that tug on the neck. And then eventually we're going to be able to get away from the tugs and only make those corrections with the e-collar and then go from that slip lead, which you still have quite a bit of control because it's up around the smallest part of the neck. Um, It's sliding really easy to make those corrections to going just to a clip lead on their flat collar. So that's the progression of our easy lead. It goes from up over the muzzle, so flipped up, to slipped around their neck to just clip. So flip, flip, flip. It's as easy as that. One, two, three. So I think that's all we have time for part one. We're trying to break these into smaller segments so that we can upload them faster because our internet Sucks. sucks. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back for part two. All right, and we are back for part two of this week's Yawa. You ask, we answer, and let's get with it, baby. (laughs) Baby. All righty. I don't know. What what else are you supposed to say when you have a mustache? Yes, that was part of show and tell. Why didn't we get that in part one? Well, part two. Ethan now has a mustache. Uh, Tell us what you think about it in the comments below. I kind of like it. So let's see what you guys have to say. Yeah, I don't know if I'm 100% loving it, but I have not had anybody tell me that it is bad yet. So be the first <laughs> if you if you really feel that way. So I want to get started on this first question. There was quite a few questions in regards to this, and I think maybe I'm making an assumption, but I think a lot of people have been watching our YouTube videos on developing a litter of puppies and making some evaluations. And also it is kind of the springtime puppy season where people are picking out puppies, going to other breeders and looking at puppies and they're trying to decide how to pick a puppy. How to pick your puppy. So first question from Sorensen Cami on Instagram. How do you guys decide which of your own litters you want to keep a puppy out of? And how do you decide which puppy out of the litter you want to keep? It's a fantastic question. I'm going to tell you most of the breedings that we're doing, unless we've already done it multiple times. So it'd be like a second or a third repeat. But even in those times, we're often doing, um, we're often looking for a puppy too. We're always trying to build and grow and it takes a lot of picking puppies in order to do that. So we don't breed a litter without potentially being interested in keeping a puppy. Yeah. That's what, and, long story short there. And we're always trying to, again, better the breed, better our breeding program and move our program continuously towards our 
imagination of a perfect dog, which is a great family dog that's going to turn it on in the field, be able to do waterfall hunting all day long, not quit, but then be able to be sweet in the house, curl up on a dog bed, play with our son and do that all really well. So when we're looking at keeping a puppy, we're looking at those type of characteristics out of the litter as well. Um, and timing also plays a role on if we're going to keep a puppy, uh, like we talked about with litter mates recently, if you've got puppies that are too close together, that's going to make things really difficult as well. So sometimes we've got litters that are coming pretty close together. So we have to make decisions on who's going to keep a puppy who, and if we're going to keep a puppy or if we're going to have to wait for, um, a repeat breeding, if we're going to try and keep a puppy out of that specific cross. And then the things like we were talking about that we look at is we evaluate the puppies and we say, okay, this puppy's a little bit more of a handful than what we maybe are going to want to have around with multiple puppies. And we know that somebody on our puppy list is definitely a hard charging hunter, that this is going to be their one and only dog that they want to put a ton of time into. And that might be a better fit for them. Um, whereas our pack dynamic. We have to have a puppy that's pretty easy going to be able to just enter that pack and start training, but be okay hanging out with the other dogs um, and not getting 100% of the attention all the time. So that helps us make our decision as well. Um, and then we also look at, well, are we wanting to keep a male or are we wanting to keep a female this time around based on what our breeding program is going to need? And uh, we are we are always picking our dogs to be potential breeders. So it is something that we're looking at confirmation and we're looking at um, just movement and things like that. And some of those things are a little harder to see with puppies. Um, you can see some of it, but there is quite a bit of changing that happens between eight weeks and fully mature. So it doesn't, it's not an exact science. Like that's, and if, uh, if we weren't, Picking with puppies, we're actually going to be doing this later, and there will be more information on this soon. Um, if I was getting a dog from another breeder, which we have done on occasion, uh, whether that be we bred out the dog, like Quest came that way. So the um, the kennel had bred to Quest, or had bred to Vex, excuse me. And, and then produced we got a, Quest. And produced Quest, and we got a puppy out of that. And we said, Cheryl, which puppy do we want? That was kind of how that worked. Yep. And she made a great recommendation. She told us why she made that recommendation and Quest really has fit the bill for what she said she'd be and what we were looking for. 100%. So trusting your breeder is always a good uh, part of that equation. Uh, that question was kind of seconded by Robbie.good on Instagram. Uh, what are the differentiating qualities from the pick of the litter over their litter mates? Um, and, and what do you look for when choosing a puppy at eight weeks, when you're selecting a new candidate for your breeding program? So we kind of hit on that. Um, but the other side of that, that people don't always think about is really the puppies all seem to fit a specific person. They're not exactly the same. They're not little clones of each other. They have slight differences and it is very, very rare that people come out to look at their puppies and ask questions and interact with them. And they don't end up going home with the puppy or one of the puppies that they were really interested in. And that's because they interact with those puppies and they go, well, this is the one that came up to me right away. So they feel like a, a more of a bond with that puppy right off the bat. Um, we, we do our pick all at the same time. So everybody's there. And I would say that most of the time, the puppies do a good portion of the picking of the people and 
rarely has there been a time where it hasn't been just automatic. Every puppy went to different people kind of thing. So, And it really seems like everyone ends up being very happy with the pick that they got. So, And everybody's looking for slightly different things, too, oh, which yeah. is why Absolutely. picking puppies out of a litter, not everyone wants the same puppy. So those were really good questions. Um, I had another good one that I saw in here just a second ago. Oh, yes, this one. From Grant Wagner Zero on Instagram, do you recommend taking hunting dogs to the dog park after they return home from training? Sure. Why not? I was going to say 100% yes, because the dog park is a great way for the handler and the owner to get good practice handling those dogs in high distraction situations. So when the dogs are here for training, they work on a of obedience as well as their hunting training because 99.9% of the dogs that come in for training are people's family dogs that they want to be, you know, great parts of the family. And then they get the opportunity to hunt eh, a few times a year. So they want them to be able to do those tasks as well. But the obedience really boils down to be one of the most important things to the people that are having their dogs trained with us. Not everyone that picks up their dog is a professional handler. So... Pretty much none of them. That's pretty much why they sent their puppies (laughs) and dogs to us for training. But they need to practice and they need to feel comfortable handling those dogs. Uh, And in the higher distracting situations where there's a lot going on, that's when that handling is going to be a little more difficult. So, yes, you're in still a controlled environment because most dog parks are still fenced in. But there's a lot going on typically. So you can work on recalls. You can work on healing. You can work on um, sit stays. You can work on a ton of things in those high distraction environments. It doesn't just have to be go to the dog park and have a free for all screw around fest. It can be, yeah, we go to the dog park, but we're training, we're working, we're focused, we're obedient. And that can be more beneficial for your dog and for you than just letting them go run amok. Yeah, we uh, used to live in town at one point in time, and when we did, we utilized the dog park with our dogs that way exactly. Now, granted, they got some free runaround romp time, but oh, for sure. it typically started, we're going to come in, and this may sound a little bit um, different too. A lot of people say, well, let, let's run some steam off first. Well, um, we went in with the mentality of you can behave and we're going to work through the high distraction situation in the hardest part of the whole process. And if you can handle that, you're going to be better off in, uh, in the long run. So do some healing around the outside of the fence, kind of, um, then maybe a little bit through the middle and then say, all right, let's go play fetch for a little bit and screw around and sniff other dogs, butts. you know, do dog things. Dog things, dog things, sniffing other dogs, butts. I actually saw a video on that of people acting like dogs at dog parks. It was hilarious. I wish that I knew where it was from, but it, I saw it on Facebook or YouTube or something. Uh, Someone, producer, producer, find that real quick. I'm trying to produce here. We, um, if you would like to be our producer, <laughs> put it in the comments. We uh, typically shoot this every Sunday or Monday night uh, in the evening-esque. After our son has gone to bed. Stop by. You can uh, share in the old Kettle House uh, Brew Company company pints here. Next question. Okay, he'll find this. I'm trying to find the next question that I really wanted to ask. I wish there was a better way for me to organize these questions. So um, one question that is a quick and easy one is eight weeks too early to start clicker training from SE underscore Mac 55 on Instagram. 
Absolutely not. We recommend starting clicker training day one when you get your puppy home. Making them work for their meal is a really great way to do that. And you start by charging the clicker. We've got tons of videos on our YouTube channel about how to do that. Like I said, that's an easy one. I found it. It is. Oh, he's copying the link somewhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's called People Acting Like Dogs at a Dog Park. I think that's exactly what I said. Said it was. Yep. So um, I will go ahead and throw this in the. We'll make it pop up somewhere. It'll be. Can somewhere. you do like other links on a video? I don't have any idea. Okay. Well, we'll try and put it in the description because that'd be funny. Mm-hmm. Send this off. All right. What's the next question? I'm looking. You know, you could help me out by doing a little bit of this yourself. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> he makes me do all the question organization. And it's a lot of pressure. Oh, here. This one's from Rob. Rob. Rob Spittler. Thanks for the beer, Rob. So on Facebook, who is the manufacturer of the pink gun? Uh, Ha ha. Which pink gun? Uh, They're all all Berettas. Berettas. I was going to say that's that's not. They are all Berettas. Uh, One pink gun is a Beretta Silver Pigeon, and then the other is an A400. Which was my A400. Yeah. And Ethan needed it. And I replaced yours. Yes, he got me a new one, which it's actually blue because it's the A400 XL. Which is way better than the original. It's a lot prettier. (laughs) Yes, so both Berettas. Great question. Do we have time for one more? Uh, this yeah, this last one, this one's a short one. one. From Joe Bozalak on Facebook. When collar conditioning, what should come first? Collar pressure or cue? Interesting question. So there's um there's a couple things to keep in mind with that. And that timing that you're asking about is very, 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 very important. So we actually put together a video not too long ago. Um on operant conditioning. Operant conditioning, which is a big part of how we train and develop. So we start with positive reinforcement. You're going to teach with positive reinforcement. We teach with um, positive reinforcement for everything. Typically using a food reward. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to start to switch over to negative reinforcement. Now, negative reinforcement is going to be um, the dog basically responding to a stimulus. And then as soon as they've responded, that stimulus goes away. Now, we can't just sit around and wait for things to happen. So we apply the stimulus. And we ask for the behavior, and when the behavior is completed, the stimulus shuts off. So they learn the negative reinforcement aspect of things. It, it gets, it leaves. It's negative. It's pulled away. That collar pressure as soon as the dog complies. So then, when we switch from negative reinforcement to positive punishment, um, we actually ask for the cue first, and then give the dog the opportunity to avoid collar pressure altogether by complying the first time. So if we say, you know. Fido here, and they go. Doo, 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 doo. Then you turn the collar pressure on, and then they go. Oh, hey, there it is. And as long as your timing is good with that, then you can develop a dog that completely responds without the collar all the way around. So when you're doing the initial stages of collar conditioning, collar pressure will be first, collar and pressure. then your cue. Then your cue. You're done. Then you're done. Magic. It's magic. It's not magic. It's a conditioning it's process. It's a conditioning process. <laughs> well. 
Well, thank you guys for asking some more great questions. That's all we've got time for in part two. And we will be back very shortly with part three. And we're back with part three of this week's Yawa. I had to jump in there quick before Ethan got to do the introduction. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gotten to do a single introduction this series. If this is your first time to our channel, welcome. And please hit the subscribe button. I wanted to mention that I was looking at some analytics. And they said that 80... Producer. Yeah, producer. 80% of the people that watch our videos, which happens to be, there's about half a million views every month right now, which is pretty cool. Uh, You know, we're still small time for YouTube, but it's big for us. And of those half a million views, 80% of them are done by people that don't subscribe to the channel. So if you are one of those non-subscribers, please subscribe. It helps us out. Now we're going to answer your questions. So, first question from James Schick on Facebook. Is reassuring your dog when introducing them to a new situation or challenge bad, or is the reassurance more for the mental health of the owner-trainer? For example, some dogs are distressed when going to the vet, and owners will say, it's okay to reassure or calm the animal. This question sounds so specific, it almost seems loaded. Like that they have a specific answer that they're hoping for? No, like they've heard the specific answer from me directly because this is like a very, very, very specific question that I talk about all the time when, because it happens almost every single time that somebody brings their dog into the kennel, not every single, but a lot. Dog is unsure, even if it's just a little bit, it's just mild. Hey, this is new. Don't know you, don't know these dogs, don't know this situation. Um, And you see that instantly. We try and apply our personal feelings or how we feel like we may be want to be treated um, to the dog. And that ends up in exactly how I said, oh, it's okay, buddy. You know, oh, good dog. You're fine. We call that coddling. Well, it's coddling. But at the same time, it's it's, uh, reinforcement-based training, right? So the dog's sitting there apprehensive, shaking, scared, barking, whatever. And you're sitting there saying, you know, it's okay. And basically the same kind of manner that you would say, you know, good dog when they do something right. You know, you're giving well, them love and you're giving and attention. them attention yep. for that behavior, which is reinforcement positively, actually positive reinforcement for the behavior. And it's their, it's 100% their idea. So reinforcement based training goes from pretty effective to ridiculously effective when it's 100% the dog's idea. So, And then they think that it's okay and they're going to get this attention for acting unsure these are in okay any behaviors. situation. Yeah, these are okay uh, response to this situation. We, we actually get asked this a lot in regards to other behaviors as well. So it's a good question that I wanted to hit on because people will say, my dog is really food aggressive or growls if we start petting him or messing with him mm-hmm. or putting our hands in his food bowl. And I say, well, what do you do when that happens? We tell him, oh, it's okay. It's okay. We're not going to take your food. It's okay. Don't worry. And just like Ethan said, that's reinforcement-based training. So you're reinforcing that what that dog is doing, growling, grumbling, being stiff, 
when you're messing with him and his food yeah. is okay. And it's definitely not okay. Not okay. So, um, on to the how maybe you could go about it a little bit differently. Yes. And I was going to just go there. So, well, I so went there. there. Um, this is what I would say is most of the time we're just going to ignore the behavior, unless the behavior is not ignorable, but ignore the behavior. And then once they have calmed down and that has gone away, then reward them. Say, oh, good dog. You know, this is good behavior. Pat, pat, pat on the side. You're doing it right now. And then if it comes back, you're going to try and ignore it again. Um, The other side of it can be just to redirect focus. So a little, you know, this would be a Caesar Milan, you know, whatever he does with his mouth and his little, (laughs) but it's a, it's a focus redirector. It's just enough of a, slightly attention getting noise and they're they see movement and things so he's got his hand involved you know it's it's just hey and then they look at you and they stop what they're doing and then again you can say good dog all right be done with that you don't need to be growling whining shaking barking whatever you're doing that's not what we're looking for And something that we utilize a lot to help dogs when they're coming into the kennel and they're unsure and not comfortable being here for the first little bit is we use our treadmill a lot of times to give them something else to think about, Mm -hmm. make them focus on something else instead of worrying. if you haven't seen this, we have a video that shows how to teach your dog, yes, your dog, to run on a treadmill. And that's something that's just going to build a lot of mental stability as well, so that coming into other new environments is going to be that much less stressful on them. So we use it. You probably have seen it on our Instagram story a lot. We also use it to help keep dogs quieted down because they are thinking about running and working and maintaining a pace and not thinking about the other training sessions that they're missing out on and whining and complaining about it. Well, it's great mental and physical stimulation that happens at the same time because they have to focus on what they're doing as well as they're actively moving. Yes. So uh, that was a really great question, James. I'm glad you asked it. Next question from Drew Clements on Facebook. I know that you encourage light tug of war to encourage a natural tug, but do you continue into adulthood as a game or eliminate it after the pup is retrieving well? Also, do you allow bracemates to play tug of war with each other? So I'm... Not 100% sure about the last part with the brace mates to play tug of war with each other. Um, Litter mates, for sure. They play tug with each other with toys and things like that as they're developing uh, through eight weeks old. And then obviously they're going to new homes, so they'll be separated. Brace mates, though, if we're talking about uh, doing retrieves with older dogs that are working on retrieving drills or in the field over birds, we definitely don't allow them to play tug of war over items like that. Uh, In those situations, we actually recall the dog that doesn't have the retrieve first, um, or if there's two handlers, the handler that's handling that dog will recall that dog so that the dog that's got the retrieve first, whether it's a bumper or a bird, can complete that retrieve without being pestered and hounded by another dog. Yep. So the biggest thing to keep in mind here is anything your dog is doing, they're conditioning themselves to. So when we start the tug aspect of things, and now I have another new little puppy coming soon. We're not going to do an entire series, but we are going to incorporate him into some of the places that we may have holes in the other series. So it'll be like the series of holes. Yeah. And revisit (laughs) the things that people have a lot of questions about. Tug of war. Tug of war is one of them because there's- Biting, crate training, potty training are some of the big ones. If we get a biter, it doesn't happen very often. I mean, but we will try. Um, 
We will try. I was just going to mention, in the last Muddy Benny puppy update video, we actually had a little puppy biting issue during our water introduction. Oh, yeah. I was down taking pictures and came up and bit me right on the face. So. Oh, I was talking about when they bit me. and okay. I. so maybe we'll have a biter. We might. Um, so, but we'll the, the tug aspect of things, which is um, where this question was about originally the... We digress. We digress. The the puppy aspect of things, it kind of ends with the puppy phase. And what we are looking to do is a very specific progression of get them excited about tug, develop a strong natural grip and natural hold. And then we start going from this tugging game to actually giving to them, like here, now hold it, good dog. Then doing a slightly less tugging, and that just kind of stimulates that again and it will help to develop a natural hold from puppyhood on now as soon as we've got that we're going to utilize it less and less and less and less to where it's not necessary at all anymore and then while they're holding we'll yep. give them a lot of praise you know, and physical attention in a calm, calm manner, manner 100%. Uh, especially pulling them and swinging them into a more heel position which is something that we try and develop in our puppies because that's a behavior that we're going to develop and really um condition in our adult dogs for further testing and training. And now that we've developed this really strong hold in a dog that may be predisposed to almost try and fight us a little bit for uh, those retrieves now, because we've played tug, you know, it's, um, we do two things. You're either going to just open their mouth and take it from them, take the bumper or bird or whatever from them, which is very easy when they're small, or we utilize a small flanking technique, which is reaching down, just giving a light tug on their flank and they'll go and leave whatever was in their mouth in your hand. So I'm going to put together another video to kind of show that and shed a little more light on because there are quite a few questions of... We did have a tug-of-war video on the docket. We just need a puppy. We just need a puppy, yeah. And we've so, got one coming soon, this coming weekend. Coming soon to a household near you. Our household. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So next question, which is a really good one and pretty short, from mm. Dan Camp on Facebook. What Dan Camp. What model do you guys use for belly collars? Seems like I can uh-huh. only find the straps for neck collars online. Ah, well, this is great because you're not going to, if you continue to look, this would be something that's kind of funny. I've been in the same situation as you. Um, there are flash collars that are designed for dogs to be worn in hunt tests. And I have always heard them referred to as brace collars because your brace mates are separated. This is, this is, this is, we're getting there. The brace collars have an orange side and a green side, and you flip them back and forth to show whether your dog A or B in the running order. If you have two dogs that look similar, judges can pick out which is which very quickly and easily. So there's no confusion. Now, or less confusion. <laughs> so there's less confusion. So I um looking for some brace collars. Well, that's not a thing that exists. Uh, that's flash not what collars, they're called, so it yeah. makes it really hard to find them. They're 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 only available in a couple places unless somebody's making them custom, which a lot of people are doing now, but um, they're called flash collars, and once you figure that out, they're very easy to find on a couple different gun dog supply websites. So, so the same can be said when you're searching for belly collar. The belly collar is only referred to as a belly collar based on the position of where you place the collar. It is the exact same unit that goes around the dog's neck. So we're using DT Systems collars. We, in training, are using the 1820 series, which can have up to three dogs on it. 
mm-hmm. and we use two collars then that we can switch back and forth with with the same transmitter, one on their neck, one on their belly. But DT Systems has quite a few units and models that have three dog or two dog units that you could get so that you can have an add-on collar so that you can use one transmitter and have both a neck collar and a belly collar at the same time. They've got the RAP 1400, the RAP 1450, the MR1100, the H20 1850, and they've got their SPT series of both beeper and non-beeper collars. But if you're getting the SPT series, you need to know ahead of time to make sure that you order the two dog unit because the transmitter is different. If you've only got one dog, you get this transmitter that only runs one dog. If you want a two dog unit, you have to order a different transmitter that's going to use be used for two collars. Whether you order both collars, the add-on collars at the same time or not, um, that's no, that you, only comes as the two dog or one dog. So it's a. Uh, oh, it's does a, it come with the add-on in it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, yep. oh. So you get it as the two dog package. So it's a, the SPT is one of the foundation collar units that they created. And back in the day, um, all of the collars were, you either got your one dog or your two dog or everything. And then they made, oh, I'm going to go with maybe 10 or 12 years ago. They came out with their plus models, maybe less than that. They came out with what they refer to as plus models. And then every new collar that's come out since then have pretty much all been quote unquote plus models. So you buy your one dog unit and they're expandable. So great question. It's a really good question. Mm, Do you think we have time for one more? One more short one. Sure. I don't know if I got a short one. They're all kind of long. Yeah. Just read one. I'll make it short. I'll talk real fast. From Max underscore running O2 on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Have you ever considered sled dog sports to keep your dogs in shape? I think that sounds like a fantastic idea. The only thing that we are missing here in Kansas is snow. But we do something similar if you think about it. We rode our dogs, so yeah. we're, we're hooking them up to harnesses. They're not necessarily exactly like a pulling sledding harness, uh, but it allows them to stay in a controlled position, work really hard, and help condition themselves in a controlled situation. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people that use similar, like uh, ski joring or bike joring or run joring, and uh, they're getting pulled in that sense where the dogs are pulling against and having that resistance to help build muscle and condition. Uh, I don't like to run enough to do that, and I'm scared to do it off a bike, but Ethan's not, so maybe we'll get to see a video of that someday. Ethan's not. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'm not. I'm volunteering him for this activity. Yeah, but you've done uh, rollerblade joring. True. That's true. But we don't have enough concrete where we're at now. We have too much gravel, so... Oh, darn. Biking it is. We don't even own a bike. We'll get a bike. (laughs) Because I want to video this. Okay. Well, uh, bike joring coming to a uh, YouTube channel near you. (laughs) Thank you guys for watching part three of this week's Yawa. We'll be back shortly. And be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you don't miss Ethan's bike joring video coming soon. And we're back with part four and our final part of this week's Yawa, which if means... If you haven't seen part one, two, or three... Subscribe and go to our playlist so you don't 
missed the rest of them. Yeah, look for them. Part one, two, and three. I don't think they're labeled part one, two, and three, but we do have just this all available. Just watch them all. Yeah, just watch just, them all. Just watch all the, all the videos. Look at all those videos. So we've got a lot of questions to get through that I want us to be able to answer in this part. So we're going to get started. Here we go. From Alicia Nagyatan, maybe, Okay. on Instagram. I'm getting an eight-week-old GSP next month, and I'm debating on whether I should use puppy pads overnight, keeping her crate door open into her exercise pen lined with puppy pads to help potty train her, or if I should just set my alarm and wake up to take her outside every couple of hours, which is best. Don't do the puppy pad thing, would be my recommendation. I'm going to go with probably not the puppy pad thing. And I wouldn't necessarily have to say set your alarm. I would say put your puppy to bed at a reasonable time, you know, 9, 10 o'clock at night after they've had a chance to play and burn off some energy, train, go to the bathroom. Hopefully you fed early enough that they've had a chance to get their peeing and pooping done. Then put them to bed, let them calm down, and then if they start whining, you know, three or four hours later, those first few nights you might want to get up with them, give them the opportunity to go to the bathroom, then back in their crate to go back to sleep. But then eventually you're going to want to help them be able to extend the amount of time that they can stay in their crate without crying and without needing to go to the bathroom. Don't set your alarm and say, well, they're only going to be able to hold it for three hours and then wake them up. If your puppy's sleeping and they may sleep through the night, just let them. And if they start whining and letting you know, hey, you know, 10 p.m. till 6 a.m. is just a little too long for me and they start waking mm-hmm. you up at 3 a.m., you know, that's when you go let them out. But don't do the puppy pee pad thing because that's never going to encourage them to have that bladder control that they're going to need and mm-hmm. develop as well as if you give them free access into an extra space they are really going to fight and battle being crate trained. Yeah, and you could just wake up to pee pads ripped up everywhere. Well, there's that. So, mm, yeah, good question. It's a great question. And people ask that all the time, so don't feel like... So, well, and to, to just the, the smidgen to add to that, I've, we've actually had somebody, he reached out, he said, all right, so my puppy is now nine, no, now three months old or something so they've had the puppy home for about a month and said when can i stop getting up every two to three hours to let him out and it's like whoa buddy (laughs) that's usually like the first couple days yeah hey um putting in a valor effort there but and and that's the thing is anything that your dog's doing they're conditioning themselves to so while we want to be available to help let them out to you know kind of build off of good behaviors let's let them kind of try and make that call by saying, Hey, I need to pee. Not, Hey mom wakes up every night at three o'clock to let me out to pee. And we have to have reasonable expectations. So Mm -hmm. your puppy being able to hold it all night long, though, some puppies are going to be able to, not all puppies are. So if they can't make it the whole night, yeah, you're going to have to get up and let them out until they've got better bladder control and a more developed bladder. Um, but then pushing them a little bit by saying whine for a little bit and see if you can fall back asleep. And then I'll let you out when my alarm goes off at six um, and then check their towel. If they had an accident, then you go, they're not quite ready for it and let them out when they cry. So good question. question. It's a great question. Next question. 
from Allie Sue's on Instagram. Did a no, no. Got litter mates. (laughs) Saw your video on reasons not to do that a little too late. Pups are now 12 weeks old. Question is how to stop the rough play. We try distracting them, but they go right back to wrestling and biting each other. You have to uh, keep them 100% separated. Pretty much the only answer. At least for a while. I mean, it's not like you're going to have each of these dogs for 12, 15 years and they never get to interact and play with each other. Through development. Through development, it's going to be really important to separate them as absolutely much as possible so they don't have that opportunity for the rough play where what's going to happen is one is going to establish dominance over the other um, and then they're going to think that that's the okay way to play and interact with each other and with other dogs. And it sounds borderline unrealistic or impossible which is a big part of why we recommend not doing it. But Sorry you didn't see the video until too late but Um, If you put in the time, effort, and energy now and do as much separation as you can and train separately and give them outside playtime separately, after they get through that development stage, I would say probably, how old do you think you could? Year. I was going to say maybe nine months if you put in a lot of (laughs) obedience training. Yeah. It it just comes down to evaluating them. Um, You know, they're going to go for runs together and everything else, but you have to, if you're, if they're going to be hunting dogs and they're just running and tagging or jumping on each other and whatever, they're not thinking about hunting either. And so it's anything we, that they're we doing. We refer to that as playing grab ass. Yeah. yeah. Just running it, around, chasing each other, biting each other on the ears and butts and tails and necks. And It's going to be a conditioned behavior. So you're going to need to either find time to run them individually or run them with other, with other dogs so that they can, um, you know, learn the proper way to interact, which is they need to go hunt and they need to do that. Now, if they're just being puppies, and family companions and adventure dogs and whatever else you do, um, those things aren't going to be as big uh, as big of an issue, but still anything they're doing, they're conditioning themselves. So it's good that you recognize this rough play now is not ideal. Um, keep them separate, train them separate, work them separate, interact with them separate. And build as much obedience as you can so that you can get them to the point where they can both be out on dog beds and not roughhousing together. Yep. The better job you do conditioning that they don't constantly just attack each other, the the faster it'll go away. So, Good question. Have fun. Keep us posted. And a really good place to keep us posted would be patreon.com slash standingstonekennels. It's our online training community set up to go hand-in-hand with all of the video content that we put out. You can try it at home and then... Uh, video it and send it to us and I will watch them. I do them every single day. Rarely on a small occasion do I not get to them every single day. And then um, I answer directly what you're having issues with and how to kind of work through that. And since you've got litter mates, I would imagine and assume that you're going to have a few questions and issues arise. So might be a good resource for you. We'll see on Patreon. Next question, which is a fun one. That's why I have my dry erase board. Rock and roll. My question is about GSP genetics regarding color. Is there Mm -hmm. any genetic problem breeding black to black? Will you get liver puppies in a black on black litter? Will you get black puppies in a liver on liver litter? So I'm going to revert back to biology in high school and draw out a Punnett square. If you guys know what a Punnett square is, can remember that? Throw a like. Put it in the comments. Do the things. So it kind of looks like a tic-tac-toe board when you do it. So I got my genetic board here. So we're going to talk about black puppies 
it's a tic-tac-toe. It's tic-tac-toe. Yeah. So we're going to talk about black puppies to black puppies, which if you're talking about the black coloration, it is the dominant gene. So we're going to go with B and a big B and you a little don't B. You, don't you normally erase that. That's not how you do that. Erase it. Erase what it. are you doing? You do them like this. It's a Punnett square. You make a square and then you write on the top this is, of it. Oh, okay. We're erasing it because <laughs> it's a, no, we're not erasing it. We're erasing yours. <laughs> Here, I'm making my square for Ethan. There. And big B. <sighs> it makes me feel better. Yeah. I don't like that. So then you bring your letters down. So you're going to have two big B's here. You're missing your mic. There you go. Sorry. You're right. Two big B's here, a big B and a little B here, a little B and a big B here, and a little B and a little B here. So I'm going to quick fill those in. Why don't you talk about why we typically don't breed two black dogs okay, together? Okay, so there's a couple different things that happen with your dogs. I think there were multiple questions on to answer them specifically. If you have a black dog and they're bred to another black dog, the question would be if they're heterozygous black dogs, which would be big B, little B, big B, little B. It's carrying which is what, the, ooh, which means is what they're that black. Is. Yep. But carrying the recessive liver gene, they have the potential if bred to another heterozygous black dog to throw the color liver, which is the little B, little B down here. Now, how that works, this would be what the, the probability is for each and every single individual puppy. You have a 25% chance that the puppy will come out liver. You have a 75% chance that the puppy will come out black. And in that 75% chance, yeah. um, 25% of that is that the puppy will come out homozygous black. That's where the potential issue could arise. Now, there are a lot of people that say, oh, this can be fixed with one generation and or whatever with breeding back to a liver dog and so on and so forth. But um, ultimately, heteros homozygous black dogs, excuse me, are only going to produce black dogs. And the reason that there is a potential issue for this is as breeders, we are seeing a huge trend towards I want a black puppy. I want a black male. I want with a black no female. no real reason for it other than... They color. think that it's pretty. Yeah, and yeah. then there's a lot of other breeders that we've heard of recently. Um, maybe not as big time breeders, but they've got a few dogs and they're going, black is super popular. We want to produce as many black puppies as possible. 75% of a litter sounds like a good number of black puppies. Let's breed two black and white dogs together. And then you get this. So you've got, like Ethan was saying before, the two big Bs because you had a black homozygous dog, even bred to a um, regular black dog, you're going to get more homozygous black dogs, as well as these dogs will all be black. Even if you say, hey, I need a little eraser thingy. I'll use my finger and mom spit. I hear that that's good for like everything. You just magically got it too. Okay, so even if we breed our homozygous black dog now to a liver dog, which would be little b, little b, mm -hmm. every single dog will be black. 
do that. Mm-hmm. Do. Now, the last option and the And the worst. reason that we don't want so many black dogs becoming part of the Make potential gene spit here. Yeah. Dad spit I'm sure works just as good. But the potential problem with breeding black dogs to black dogs and then having homozygous black dogs that are also breeding more dogs is you're going to move this direction of where are the liver dogs? And there is definitely a reason that there are multiple colors in the gene pool for short hairs. And if you didn't know, there used to be a third color of short hairs. Red. Red. Uh, We should have totally used that. People to guess, put it in the comments below and win something. We ruined it. Uh, But we don't want to happen to liver dogs what happened to red dogs in the short hair gene pool where they cannot be found because there are characteristics that liver dogs have that are important as well, including simple things as like expression. So if you look at dark, dark black dogs, sometimes their eyes get so dark that they just like look like these black holes. It's a, it's a balancing act because the liver dogs, you can end up with too light of colored eyes and the black dogs, you can end up with too dark of colored eyes and you, you either have too much expression or lack of expression. You almost get like a ghostly feel or this blacked out demon feel. Yeah. I mean, that was, I mean that's what right? it is, you know? Yeah. It's, um, so then the last of the options would be you end up with two homozygous black dogs and you breed them together. And then what do you have? You have an entire litter of homozygous black dogs and these little homozygous black dogs run everywhere. And the more that becomes more and more popular, the people that have said, oh, it only takes one liver dog to fix this problem. Well, then there's no liver dogs left. There aren't any liver dogs left. So now what do you have? You have a German black haired, short hair pointer things. German, yeah. German black short. I don't know. And I know that Ethan said that this is the last option, but we didn't really truly go over liver dogs to liver dogs. And that would be little B, little B, little B, little B. And they they all are liver. Yep. Yep. So to, um, to, uh, this is a question that gets asked and it goes hand in hand with this, but can you breed two liver dogs together and get black dogs? Absolutely not. Can you breed two black dogs together to get liver dogs? Yes. If they're heterozygous black dogs. So absolutely fantastic question. And now you can see, hold that up one more time. This is how you're supposed to draw your, your Punnett squares there. I like it's my a square. tic-tac-toe look a little bit better. It's a square, yeah. Okay, uh-huh. well. Next question from, I'm just ignoring his comment and moving on to the next question. Michelle Leach from Facebook. Thanks, Rob. Hello, I have a 12-week-old GSP, and his tail tip is just a scar. It drives me completely nuts looking at it, as I don't believe the hair will grow back to cover it. It won't. Can you talk about different docking techniques, and which one is your favorite for minimal scarring? We tie the tails, and we actually have a video showing exactly how we do this, and another one coming out shortly-ish. So, um... The tying of the tails, it involves uh, an elastic cord. You tie them, eek, they're banded then, and they, they fall, fall off, off in three to five days, depending on how snug you got them um, and how small the puppy are. The They seem like they do a little better if they're on the, we usually dock between three and five days. And if they're closer to that three-day mark, um, they fall off a little faster. If they're to the five-day mark, they fall off a little slower, but they all heal about the same, which is, um, a scar that is virtually impossible to find in the hair. 
um, and all of the other methods that involve cutting and sewing and or gluing, gluing and stuff. Mom usually messes with them and they don't heal right and you end up with a scar, just like what you're talking about. Now, there is pretty much no way to grow the hair back. Sorry. Sorry. Um, the only thing that you could potentially try, which the it's a, it is a long shot, uh, would be to use some form of hair regrowth stuff. Um, I know they make it for horses, typically. primarily marketed to horses for like hit their mane and tail. Cause long flowing manes and pretty tails are definitely something that is sought after in the horse world. Yeah. One of the products is called Corona. Uh, yeah, I know. And then another one is, uh, I think it's called the mane, mane and, tail. and tail, maybe. And they have a whole line of shampoos and different ointments and stuff. So those you would be a couple options. It. Yeah, your puppy's yeah. only 12 weeks, so there's maybe more of a potential that that hair could grow, but probably, probably not. not. So, um, unfortunately, yeah. uh, that's what we know. But banding is what we always do. If you are a breeder and this is why you're asking, or if you're you know someone that would be something to definitely recommend. Check out our video. Pretty much anybody can do it. It's fairly easy and foolproof. Next question from Lydia Hebner. I believe this was on uh, Instagram. I believe that I stamped a collar out for oh, her We've been this stamping morning. a lot of collars. So yeah. thank you for your business as well. If this is in fact the right Lydia. Is it common for potential buyers to come visit your facility and dogs? What are your thoughts on buyers visiting the litter prior to the going home date? Aha. So we do have a lot of clients that want to come out and visit us, visit our facility, meet the dogs, especially if they're getting a puppy from our program. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, meeting the puppies prior to them going home, that's something that we don't typically do. Um, especially before the puppies are six weeks old. Uh, We want to make sure that they've had at least one round of vaccines. And again, um, it's not something we typically do with anyone, but you can always reach out to us and ask if the puppies have been over six weeks old and you are on that litter. We have made exceptions before. Those were typically for people that weren't going to actually be able to make it to puppy pick out day. And they wanted an opportunity to get some interaction prior to making a pick with us. So, um, but yes, for the most part, no, no, but, but you can visit us in the facility and meet typically the that parents aspect of if it, 100% here at the kennel. Yep. 100%. Um, next and last question for the night. We have to get to this one. Okay. I know. I'm sorry. From Ryan Ritchie. I've got Ryan a question Ritchie. for you. We have chickens. I got an answer for you. How do I get my GSP to stop being so obsessed with them? Anytime we go out, he makes a beeline straight to the coop. I know he's a bird dog, but I don't see myself ever needing to hunt chickens. In fact, I'll probably never hunt with him anyway. Is there a way to break his obsession? This morning, I took one of the younger hens out of the coop for him to see up close. As soon as he saw it, he immediately tried to chomp it out of my hand, (laughs) but I whopped him pretty good. And he never tried that again. And I let him sniff it and lick it. Okay. That may have been the wrong thing to do, but I want him to get used to them being here because I would like to have them free range. Well, this may be the time for this week's of Ethan's unpopular opinions. Brutally honest comments. Yeah, there you go. That's the one. Whatever we call it. Ethan's brutal, whichever you like better, just let us know. Um, but in this situation, uh, 
<sighs> he's a bird dog. He's been yeah. bred to be a bird dog. They've got a lot of prey drive. They don't always have to be used to hunt. I mean, I definitely know of a lot of short hairs that live full, wonderful, great family lives being adventure dogs. But they do need a job. They do, do need something to do. And when they're given the opportunity to interact with those birds, even if they're not game birds, their prey drive is going to kick in. They're going to want to chase. They're going to want to chomp. They're going to want to be curious about them. Yeah. Could they learn? Yes. Uh, and I've seen it before that they've been, they've learned to like tolerate at best, you know, but. Or learn to leave them ar- alone when mom and dad are when watching. they're watching. Yeah. So, um, but it is going to be a struggle, especially in the situation where you're already at and you said, um, it seems to be an obsession. Yes. And that comes from a game that um, can't be won, which right now is chase the chickens around the pen. He never catches them. Um, they just jump and fly and do things I'm assuming. And, uh, it's going to, it's going to be tough. The biggest thing that you could do is to put as little absolute emphasis on the chickens as possible, which would be redirecting focus. Anytime he thinks, ah, maybe I'm going to go check the chickens, man. No, no, you're not. You're going to come back over here and you're going to kennel up on your dog, but you're going to hang out or we're going to do some other task that keeps you focused not on the chickens, but as far as, um, free ranging based on the personality of the dog that you're explaining right now, probably not going to happen unless you don't really care too much about losing a chicken every once in a while to regularly, semi-regularly. I know one of the girls that works for us and has one of the short hairs from us. She also has chickens Mm -hmm. and she, anytime her bird dog short hair is out in the yard and the chickens are around the dog guts is kenneled up on a dog bed or a place board because she is a bird dog and she's definitely being trained to be a hunting dog. And Jess understands that it's not fair to guts to be like, yeah, you can't go after these birds and you can interact with them and not be interested in them. So she puts emphasis on obedience and allows um, guts to have a specific place that she can still see what's going on and be part of being out in the yard, but can't go chasing chickens willy nilly and catching them and doing what she's been bred to do which is be a bird dog. Excellent. And the unpopular opinions thing that pop, that the reason I said that there's actually, and we'll have to find this, just search it. It's a, it's Producer. A, yeah. It's a British maybe, or maybe even Canadian something. Um, it's a So YouTube you're saying show. they have an accent. Well, some kind of have an accent, but it's uh it's funny too, which that's where a lot of the good comedy comes from. It'd be, um, and the guy sings this song, it's like unpopular opinions that it's something about you. This is an unpopular opinion that up until now you haven't even said or something like that. And they say, the guy comes on the phone. He's like, uh, people that drink coffee are weak. That's an unpopular opinion. Well, I mean, if you like coffee and I tell you that you're weak because you say you want a cup of coffee because you're tired or whatever, you know I mean? It's. Anyhow, mm-hmm. there's a show. That's where that comes from. Check we it out. We digress. Yeah, we, we've done digressed. Um, thanks, everybody, for watching. This is all the time that we have. I am out of beer, and we are out of time. I'm the guy with the pink gun. And I'm Cat the Dog Trainer. And we'll see you next week. Roll the outro. I want to 
I'm going to push the button. Is it the middle button? Uh-huh.